high as well, as we just sang, um, Oh God, show your glory. Show off your honor. Show off your power. Show off the beauty of who you are through the preaching of your word. Um, the more exposure over the years I get to preaching, teaching, in Christian circles in general, um, the one thing that sometimes stands out to me is actually how unique it is um, to the, the style that I've been convinced is most helpful of preaching just to work through books of the Bible. That's actually pretty rare. Um, and uh, and yet, I, I don't know how else I personally would do it. I'm not clever enough to just teach on a topic for, you know, 45 minutes or, or, or um, yeah, I... I I don't feel like it's helpful either to people over time in, if you want to understand the Bible, how to read your Bibles, um, how to devote yourself to the Apostles' teaching. Um, I think the best way to do that and to learn to do that is to do that together on Sunday mornings. So we're going to do that, devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching in the book of Luke this morning, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and we're going to be in the whole story this morning. Alright, so I'm not going to break it up into chunks for us over the weeks. It's a whole story. So before I dive in, I just want you to pause and think for a minute uh, about what would have to happen to draw the attention of everyone in Granville or the surrounding area. What kind of amazing spectacle would have to happen to get everyone's attention? So, be thinking about that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for this day and for your word. And I thank you for the spectacle of Jesus Christ. His coming, his dying, his rising, and the spectacle of his ascension that the apostles saw and couldn't shut up about, but turned the whole world upside down with the teaching. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be captured by uh, Christ as we look at his word this morning. Help me to be clear and helpful in the things that I say. And show us Christ, as we just sang, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what amazing spectacle would get somebody's attention, or everybody's attention, in Granville. And where would we want to do it? We're going to do a spectacle. I was thinking, where would be the best place to do it in our community? It'd probably be the high school front yard. Alright? That's a pretty central place, and it's a really busy area. And the time of day you'd want to do it, probably midday. Right? Not 7 in the morning. Um... But like, middle of the day, most people are around, maybe when the school is letting out, and you want to do something totally spectacular, right? Maybe um, you've got your pet giraffe, and you're just riding it around the thing. Yeah. I mean, that would probably bring a lot of the crowds, right? Or free elephant rides. I mean, that the Sentinel would be there for sure. They wouldn't have to go digging up news reports. They'd be there. Alright, um, I got, as I was thinking about this, I thought something that would get people to run and drive over as fast as they could, maybe not free elephant rides, 
free $100 Amazon gift cards to everyone in Granville. <laughs> that, and Whitehall. <laughs> that would probably get some people, all right? Or Walmart gift cards. <laughs> now, let's think about what happens in Acts 3. A, a person in the community, um, everyone knew that this person was unable to walk for as long as they could remember. And then they're suddenly leaping and jumping and singing praise to God. And everyone hears it. Everyone reacts to it. It's really big news. It's a big deal. And it's done in the name of someone that the religious leaders of the day had recently crucified. It's done in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's read about this together, this spectacle, this miracle done in Jesus' name. Acts 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, which like kind of like the, the public school, it's a very public central place on a hill in Jerusalem. And he asked them for money. You ever had somebody ask you for money? Side of the road. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, you look at us. So the man gave him his attention, verse 5, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. Oh, bummer. <laughs> but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by his right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now we're going to look at the, the response of the crowds to this. Look at verse 9. When all the people saw him walking and jumping and praising God, they recognized him. That's the same man that used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Had happened. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. So everybody's just running by. So like, what are you running for? Um, well, there's this guy that is healed. We, let's come see, right? I remember as a young man, I was in Chicago studying at a Starbucks, and I was walking home, well, campus, back to campus, and it was late. It was probably 11 at night. And there was like six, maybe eight high school teenager, maybe you know, 15 to 18 year old guy running past me full bore on the sidewalk, shouting excitedly. I was like, what's going on, guys? There's a big fight at McDonald's. There's a big fight. It's going down right now. And I'm like, yeah, you're running towards it? Like, they wanted in or they wanted to watch. I don't know what it was. I just booked it out of there. I had just walked past the McDonald's. It was in a rough area. But that's kind of what it was like. People running by, like, Go, go, go! And everybody's like turning and joining the crowds, right? They get to the temple. And Peter, now he's got the crowd's ear. 
He preaches a sermon to them. And I want you to listen to the sermon now. Verses 12 to 26. When Peter saw this, now I've got a crowd. He said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at John and I, us, as if by our power or godliness we made this man walk? Don't look at us like we're supermen. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the ancestors of Israel, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. That's a reference to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's given him honor, even though you gave him only shame and death. He's glorified him. He's honored him. You handed Jesus over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We, talking about himself and the apostles, we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah, his anointed king, the promised king of Israel that would come, his Messiah would suffer. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. I love that. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah. Wait, I thought Jesus already had been sent. Ah, he's coming again. Who has been appointed for you. He's your king. Even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Four, and now Peter quotes his Bible, goes to the Old Testament where this stuff is coming from. He said, quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 18, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. You reject the king, you will have no place in his kingdom. That's what Paul was saying. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets have spoken and foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets. They were your prophets, Israel. And of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, you're the father of Israel, through your offspring, through your seed, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So this morning, I want you to see three things in this passage, okay? First, we're going to look at the miracle in Jesus' name. Second, we're going to look at the crowd's response to the miracle. And third, we're going to unpack Peter's sermon together a little bit. So first, the miracle that Jesus does through Peter. And Paul and John, the miracle of Jesus' name. In the story, Peter and John, they're going to the temple. They're going to pray. 
These were two of the leading apostles of Jesus, Peter and John, together. And as they pass by a man, he's outside the temple and outside the gate, and he's asking for money, right? And if you drive into Rutland right now on Route 4, you often see the guy on the side of the road on your left as you come up down to Route 7. It's usually somebody different. Um, we saw this all over the place in Minneapolis, but you're starting to see it in Rutland. And uh, Ben, on his commute to work, you probably see him a lot, right? Um, it's kind of an awkward thing when somebody's asking you for money and maybe you don't have cash or you know there's bigger, deeper issues there and you don't know where that money's going to go and you don't feel like you should help them that way at that time. Um, and so you don't want to give them money. And so usually you don't make eye contact, right? Like that's kind of a natural thing to do. It's just, just kind of keep going, hope the light turns green before you have to stop right in front of the guy. And it's just a weird position for humans to be in. I want you to look at this though. Peter comes up and he looks straight at the guy. And not only, it's like Peter rolls down the window and looks at him, right? And not only does he look at him, he says, you look at me. So now the guy's like, okay. This is major eye contact going on. Very, very personal. And the guy expects something. I mean, I doubt that two guys have ever walked up to him before and, you know, they give him some money. I doubt they've ever looked up to him and say, look at me. Like, whoa. Drum roll. Here comes the cash. And Peter says, I don't got any money. I'm a fisherman. I'm broke. I'm a fisherman and I stopped fishing. I haven't been fishing in a long time. I work for Jesus now. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, in other words, Jesus, Christ is not a, a last name of Jesus or something like Joel Aubrey, Jesus Christ. It's, it's a title. In the name of the, the Christ, the, the King. In the name of Jesus the King of Israel, okay? Which guy was that? Oh, the one from Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he reaches out his right hand. Such an eyewitness observation there. Why didn't he say, you know, his right hand? Why not his left? Because it was his right hand. He grabs him and he, he, let, he helps him up. And the guy's ankles strengthen. And he goes into the temple with them, leaping and jumping and praising God. Oftentimes in the um, big modern revival healing services, um, you know, sometimes it's a really common thing for some of these big name faith healers to heal with back pain. All right, a lot of back pain gets healed, um, and we could say a lot about that. But you know, I have back pain. I show up in a wheelchair, and suddenly I'm standing up, and uh, I don't have back pain anymore. He healed me. This is not like that. Back pain you cannot see. So maybe you got a placebo effect and you felt better. Maybe Jesus did choose to show up in that moment and give relief. He can do that. But this is like shriveled, pasty white legs that have never walked, never been strong. And the dude is jumping on them. Like jumping and leaping. He was born unable to walk. And now, he's jumping. And everybody knows it. 
Everybody knows his story. This isn't like maybe you're faking. People have been walking past this guy, many of them probably avoiding eye contact with him, for years and years and years. Because he's always at the gate, always asking for money, because he's got no other way to live. And now, here he is jumping and not saying, Peter's amazing, John is amazing, he's praising God. And there's a huge response. Everybody's running to see this thing, which is the second thing that we're going to look at. The crowd's response. This is no hidden thing. They see him. They recognize him. See that in verse 10? This isn't some trick that the apostles are playing where a healthy guy traded places with the guy pretending to be lame and they... You know, now he's jumping in his place. No, they're actually recognizing this guy who they've seen. They know it's him. It's not his double brother. It creates such a stir that they're filled with wonder and amazement. Um, and the word spreads. Verse 11, people are running. A huge crowd gathers. And now, captive audience. The stage is set for the third thing. The, mirror, the, the, the sermon. Peter's sermon. And, and in Peter's sermon, there's an outline, basically like the outline we have today. It's a simple outline. He kind of gives an introduction, and then he has three main points. All right, so let's, let's look at his introduction. He's basically setting the stage for the message in his introduction here in verse 12. He, he's saying, look, why are you so amazed, guys, that Jesus does amazing things? Um, it's not us. We're not miracle workers. We didn't fix Jumpy's legs here. All right? This man is praising God because God did it. And he did it through his servant, Jesus. So this is still kind of part of the introduction. He's like, through his servant, Jesus. Oh, you remember that guy? You remember that guy who healed lots of people and did only good? And God glorified him, by the way. God gave Jesus honor, guys, um, even though you gave him death and shame. And this launches right into the main body of Peter's message. So he sets it up with, don't look at us. Look at Jesus. Remember him? Yeah. You killed him. That's point one of Peter's message. You killed him. How? By handing him over. By disowning him before Pilate. Pilate wasn't going to kill him. He said, remember in the story, Pilate washes his hands symbolically. says, you guys, you're all doing dirty to this man, and I don't want anything to do with him. Which is pretty lame, because Pilate is the ruler. But he wants to keep peace. He wants to make the leaders happy, because if they don't get happy with him, then there could be riots in the streets, and that's all messy and Rome doesn't like riots, and he could lose his job, because you ain't keeping the peace in Jerusalem, buddy. See ya! So, Romans, let's just keep the peace. One guy dies, oh well. Right? And so Pilate crucifies him, but it's the people's fault. It's the people's fault. They handed him over, even though Pilate wanted him off the hook, the crowd wanted Jesus on the hook. And what's worse... Paul, uh, Peter says here, you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be replaced, to be released in the place of Jesus. Do you see that in verses 13 to 15? 
he's just rehearsing the facts of the Jesus story that probably a lot of the people there in the crowds could remember. Those had only happened just a couple months ago. You can remember things that happened a couple months ago pretty vividly, especially things you did wrong. So he's bringing this up to the crowds. The most shocking statement comes in verse 15, in my opinion. Peter says this, you, you see this? Look at this, these words, let them land on you. You killed the author of life. Peter's not afraid of what people think here. He's not pulling any punches. He's saying, you killed the one who created life, both physical and spiritual. You murdered him. The one who created everything, you put him to death. Can you think of any greater crime than killing the Son of God? And not only did you kill the giver of life, but you asked that a life taker take his place. You killed the life giver, and you asked for a life taker, Barabbas, to be replaced to be released to you. He's in prison for murdering innocent people. And you say, give us Barabbas, a rebellion leader, not Jesus. We don't want him. Barabbas' name in Aramaic is son of the father. We want that son of the father. So much irony. Not this son of the true father. Barabbas, someone who did what they were doing, we side with a murderer as we murder the Son of God. And yet Peter doesn't linger long in pointing the finger at them. Now, he's already hinted at the resurrection earlier in his introduction by saying God glorified Jesus, and now he specifies more, or makes more clear what he means. That's his second main point, okay? You killed him, but... And he, he was dead, he was really dead, but God raised Jesus. You see that in verse 15? You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then he goes on to say, we saw it. We were witnesses at the end. We are witnesses of the risen Christ. And then, a little, little bit more subtly, Peter's going to say, you guys are witnesses to the risen Christ too. And here's how. You don't see Jesus' body with your eyes. You don't hear his voice with your ears. But crowds... You see the deeds of the risen Jesus right now being done in the name of the risen Jesus with a power that nothing else can explain. As this lame man is leaping and jumping before their eyes, the crowds are not witnessing the superpowers of two fishermen. They're witnessing the risen Christ Jesus at work doing what he does. Doing what he did when he walked the earth. He is restoring this Israelite man to health. Right at the very temple. The place the Israelites would go to worship God. The place they expected God to show up and meet with them. At the temple of Israel, Jesus begins his restoration of Israel. And everyone witnesses it. And now the people watching have to make a choice. A choice that anyone who encounters Jesus, whether through the preaching of his word, like right now, or through um, the, the, the evangelism of a friend, anyone who encounters Jesus has to make this choice. Am I going to choose ignorance to Jesus? I don't really know him. 
Indifference to Jesus? Meh. So what? Rejection of Jesus? He's a liar. He's a fool. He's a lunatic. Crazy man. Or maybe as some have tried to go this route, he, maybe, he didn't even really exist. Or, are you going to do what Peter pleads now in his third point with the crowds to do? Repent and turn to Jesus. See verse 17. This is his turning point. Now, fellow Israelites, he says, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. You thought you were doing the work of God, murdering the Son of God. You were misguided. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. In other words, even though you ignorantly did it, and you wanted to do it, and it was evil, God had a plan to make evil itself commit suicide at the cross. Turning it back against itself, the death of Christ leads to the victory of God over death itself. You have to die to defeat death, right? And so, God had a plan. And now, Peter says, turn. Turn to God. To repent means to turn from something. And Peter's saying they should turn from their ignorance about Jesus. He's alive. He's the author of life. He's doing things. He's working in this world. He's bringing restoration. Just look at this jumping guy here, Peter. All right? Turn. Repent. And notice what Peter says will happen. Your sin will be blotted out. Even the very murder of Jesus can be forgiven. How much more? Your own Sins, your secret sins that no one knows, your failures, shortcomings, whether you follow Jesus or not, all sins can be forgiven by turning to Jesus. They can be wiped out. That times of refreshing, turn so your sins may be wiped out so that God will refresh you. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that Jesus the Messiah would come Again, see that in verse 20? The hope of Christ's return is here. Restoration is starting now, but any restoration we taste in this life is only temporary. Healed people still die. You can't meet the man whose legs were fixed because he died. Any healing is just like a movie trailer picturing the life to come. The best is yet to come. Jesus will come. God will send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, Jesus Christ, and he will make restoration complete when he comes. He will fix all that's broken in this world. And it will be Eden 2.0. Far better than we could ever imagine because heaven and earth will be one. The spiritual dimension of heaven that we cannot see, the invisible realm, will suddenly be visible and we will be with our King. That is the time that will come for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, when Peter mentions holy prophets, now he goes to his Bible to provide his scriptural proof from the Old Testament for what he is saying. He quotes Moses, the prophet, first. He views Moses as the first in a long line of prophets who spoke God's word to God's people. That's the job of a prophet, to speak truth for God. Look at Acts 3, 22. For, Peter's saying, Moses said, now he quotes Moses, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. If you reject Israel's king, the prophet, you will be cut off. Peter here is referring to Moses who made a prophecy in Deuteronomy in your Old Testament. Deuteronomy is the fifth chapter in a five-chapter book called the Torah, or the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this fifth chapter, Deuteronomy, ends, uh, well, it has a key prophecy in, in chapter 18, verse 15, a new Moses will come. And this new Moses, who's like the first Moses, but greater, the people must listen to him. To refuse to listen to him would be disastrous. Now, in the story of the Bible, this prophecy is very, very important. The people of Israel, God's people, they have been waiting and are waiting for a prophet to arise like Moses in Israel. Deuteronomy 18 says God will put the words of his own words in this prophet's mouth. And the people must listen to him. Now, at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the last chapter in this five-part book called the Torah, at the very end, the last chapter, Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 to 12, the last couple verses, what the, what, what the person who compiled this Torah together, the editor who finally stitched it all together, recorded the death of Moses, things like that, he wades into the text and he wants you to know something really important. Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 12. He writes this, looking back over a long line of prophets who's come, who've come since Moses. Prophets like uh, Joshua, in whom the spirit of Moses was, or, or Samuel, or um, Nathan, who prophesied to David, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah. I mean, there's a lot of prophets. He says... Since then, I want you to know, O reader, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, who Yahweh knew face to face. Who did, listen to this, all those signs and wonders Yahweh sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his officials in the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. No prophet... Until the dead raising, sickness healing, water walking, miracle working Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. That's Peter's point. And when you see Jesus still doing those things through his church, it's the sign, Israel, that the prophet you're supposed to listen to, that Moses said, listen up, people. When this guy comes, you better listen to him. That, this is very powerful for the Israelites. He's saying, listen, Moses said you should listen to Jesus. So if you're not listening to Jesus, you're disobeying your own law. The law of Moses that said when this prophet comes, who does the signs and wonders like Moses did to the Egyptians, turning the Nile to blood, throwing his staff down and comes a snake. Signs and wonders are testifying to the true nature of this prophet. And Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Then... Peter brings up another prophet, Samuel. 
The prophet Samuel was the first prophet following Moses to talk about the future Messiah that God would raise up for himself. So it's no mistake that Peter, after talking about Moses, meets a, makes a beeline to the first prophet to talk about the Messiah, the king that's coming. This king is in the book of Samuel, not just any king. He's going to be a priest king, a priestly king who's going to rule, like Adam was supposed to rule, but who's also going to worship and obey and serve and guard in God's house one day. He's going to be a faithful priest. One key passage that Samuel has that talks about this is 1 Samuel 2.35. There the prophet Samuel brings a message from God to a wicked priest of Israel named Eli, who has two very wicked sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And God basically says, I'm going to do away with you and with your house, the house of Aaron. The house of Aaron is not going to have priests anymore. That's huge. But God says this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. In um, the book of Samuel, do you remember who the king is that has, that does what's on God's heart? David, right? Well, here the priest does what's in God's heart. So you have a priest and a king. And it's, in the book of Samuel, there's, it, this is ultimately going to be the same figure that's coming. A priest king. A king who acts like a priest. Just like King David did when he's making sacrifices and dancing before the Lord. Okay? So, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what is in my heart. I will firmly establish his priestly house and my, this, this translation is important, the NIV misses this one, it says, my anointed one, or my Messiah, same thing, will walk before me always. Alright? If you're reading the NIV, it sounds like God is talking about replacing Eli and his house with Samuel. And I don't have time to get into that. He's not saying that. Samuel is part of the line of Aaron. He's saying, your father's house, the house of Aaron, Eli, is, is done away with. It's a broken line of priests. I'm going to replace it with a new priestly line who will walk before me faithfully forever. And King David himself talks about this new priestly line. It's a new order. According to the order of, who can remember? Melchizedek. Which, another sermon for another day. Not Aaronic priest, okay? Which is mind-blowing to an Israelite. That is the line of priests. And God says, I'm going to count, I'm going to write that up. There's another guy, he shows up randomly in Genesis 14. He blesses Abraham. He's better, he's greater than Abraham. He's a king and he's a priest. <laughs> a priest king who represents God like a prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. And the new king priest who's going to walk before God and be faithful, Samuel says, is going to replace the house of Aaron. So this prophet, beginning with Samuel, talks about Jesus. And now in verse 25, Peter goes on in his sermon and he says that you are heirs of the prophets. They were your prophets. They were talking to you. Moses talked to you. Samuel talked to you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all talking to you. They're, you, they're your prophets. And you're also inheritors of the covenant that God made with your fathers. This covenant, Peter's referencing, 
is the, the covenant that God made with the father of Israel, Abraham, the big daddy of Israel, right? Chosen in Genesis 12, that through his family, the family of Israel, God's people, everybody is going to be blessed. The whole world will experience God's blessing again. The blessing Adam lost in Genesis by disobeying God. God blessed them and all that, and then they have to go away from the garden and they're cursed. Abraham's kid, his seed, this future child of Abraham, he's going to get the blessing back. Not just for the Israelites, yea Israel, but for everybody. Look at this. Genesis 12, 3. God says, ultimately, through your seed, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. Verse 25. And now, Peter says that this promised blessing, the, the person who brings this blessing is ultimately Jesus. Verse 26, when God raised up his servant, the son of Abraham, he sent him first to bless you. By, how are you going to get God's blessing? By turning you from your wicked ways, your Messiah-killing, rebelling ways. The risen Jesus brings the blessing of God back to humans, starting with Israel. Israelites who turn to Jesus. In Jerusalem, right then and right now. But the blessing will continue beyond the borders of Israel. And that is the message of the book of Acts, right? The blessing of Jesus goes global to the ends of the earth. And the world gets to experience the blessing of having your sins wiped out. Having restoration and having the hope of full restoration one day so what I want to do for the rest of our time together is uh, just briefly point out how God used the miracle of this lame man to gain a hearing for his word and then also a few thoughts of application so I want you to notice that God did not use this a miracle this healing of a lame man. Listen carefully to this. We need to know this and see this and take note of this in light of the modern uh, phenomenon of faith healing ministries that goes on, especially uh, the ones that are on TV. God does not use this miracle so that John and Peter could then have an amazing healing ministry and take their healing ministry on the road from city to city and take it on TV if that had been invented back then, and have millions of YouTube videos of it, and attract huge crowds, and invite people to sow seeds of faith by sending money, so that they can buy airplanes to travel to more crowds, to heal more people, and to fake a lot of this stuff, which sadly happens, not always. I think Jesus does actually heal people, we'll talk about that in a minute, and yet, not as a business. Peter and John don't do that. That's how things are done in America. But that's not the way God used the healing, ever. That's a shameful thing, and it must stop. It must stop. What's more, the way that Peter... I'll just pause this. Benny Hinn, who is one of the most popular of these faith healers, who did a lot of this stuff, 
even he, I don't know, God knows hearts, released a statement a year ago under great pressure from his nephew, Kosti Hin. I like Kosti. He writes some good stuff. And his nephew is just, basically Benny Hinn said, I have been wrong. The gospel is not for sale. And he elaborated a little bit on that. I don't know. I, again, I, I don't keep super close track of that, but I, I watched a video where he was, I don't, even, I don't know if he, like I said, God knows his heart. But the gospel is not for sale. And healing is not the gospel. Death, resurrection, forgiveness, that is the good news. But healing points to the power of Jesus. And God uses this miracle in a unique way here. Um, I want you to see that the way Peter and John do this, they command him to stand up and walk. This seems to be done with an apostolic authority, a commanding authority, that is not like how we are encouraged to pray for healings today. The Apostle James himself, he tells non-apostle Christians, average Christians like you and I, in James 5, that when someone's sick, call together the elders of the church and pray for healing in faith. And God will heal. And I, I do believe God heals sickness today. Sometimes miraculously and radically, sometimes through the healing hand of amazing doctors and the gift of medicines, but not always, right? But he does, and he can. And I believe that God does signs and wonders, especially as we track through church history and the global advance of Christianity. These signs and wonders and the great miracles, they occur especially in Areas of great gospel advance where people have never heard about Jesus and the gospel is just breaking new ground there like it was in this early church. And God does this to get people's attention and get them to listen to the preaching of the church and the apostles. He does it in settings where other powers are worshipped. And God does it to show that a new power has come into the neighborhood. The power of the risen king, Jesus. But when the power of Jesus shows up through miracles of any kind, um, the healing is not perfect health for the healed. And that's not the goal of the healing. Everyone who's ever been healed of anything will still die and has died. The goal of healing is not healing. The goal of healing is hearing. Why don't, you, why don't you hear that? I'll say it again. The goal of healing, any healing that we pray for that happens, I get cancer, pray for me, that God would heal me. And miraculously, I get healed. God does those type of things. Or maybe I went through undergrading lots of radiation and I got healed. The goal of any kind of God showing up in an amazing <coughs> way, doing something supernatural, is not the healing in and of itself. But the hearing, the hearing of Jesus' word. And you see that in the story. Alright? They heal this guy, and the crowds run, and they hear. And we must not... I, I want to say one other thing that's been a caution over the years to my own heart, and I want to share with you. 
It can be tempting, I think, to see some of the excesses and craziness of what goes under the name faith healing in our day and age and, and swing the pendulum of our hearts towards skepticism to anything supernatural. And I don't think, I actually think that can damage our faith, our simple trust in God to show up and do things do big things, to actually answer prayer in miraculous ways. And if we don't expect God to show up, sometimes he's merciful and surprises us, but sometimes he doesn't. God responds to faith, not cynicism towards his work. Faith dies in an atmosphere of cynicism towards the power of God. So, as the people of Jesus, we can... Pray and ask Jesus to heal. You don't have to qualify it with all types of, maybe you won't, you probably won't, but maybe you will. If it's your will, possibly, would you maybe, possibly, please, kindly, probably won't, but heal this person, which is sometimes how we pray for healing. Like just ask your daddy for good things. And if he thinks it's good for you, he will wade in, right? And ask for complete trust in his power to do it. Not... Ask, seek, pray. But you might be faced with what the Apostle Paul dealt with. He's an apostle. Command healing, Apostle Paul. Uh, he doesn't in First, Second Corinthians chapter 12. He prays to God three times, asking God to heal him of something he calls his thorn. Some sort of ailment that torments him, and he's in misery. And three times, this apostle asks that it be taken away, and God's words to him is basically no. Heal yourself, physician. This is the apostle Paul who healed the, everyone on the island of um, Crete where they were shipwrecked, right? All the sick. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God had a reason for it. He said, teach Paul to rely on God and to put his hope in resurrection. So God has a purpose when he doesn't heal. So, again, the apostles had a unique authority given by Jesus to command healing in Jesus' name. And whenever they did that, or did any kind of healings, or guys like Stephen did healings, the purpose was to get an audience for Jesus. Hear the gospel, the gospel message. That's always the goal of any kind of miraculous work of God. Not to expand some ministry, but to expand the reign of Christ. So, here's a couple applications from this message. The first is simply repent and turn to God through Jesus. Jesus is alive and active in this world by his spirit and through his church. I believe that this lame man jumped. Do you? Or is Luke lying? Or didn't get his facts straight? Or misguided? I mean, really, either it happened or it didn't. You may have never witnessed a lame man jumping with your eyes, but you're witnessing it right now with your ears. All right? And it's calling for a response. 
with eyes of faith, see this man jumping, and what is the response of your hearts? It should be, listen and turn to Jesus. Turn to the message about Jesus. Turn from wherever you aren't following him in your life. Is there a place of your life, somewhere in your life, a corner of your life that needs to turn right now to Jesus in obedience and in faith, to grab onto him? If you do, here's the second thing. Your sins will be wiped out. Everything bad you've ever done, or will do, wiped out, cleansed, spotless. Turn to Jesus. Where is there sin in your life right now that you need to trust Jesus to wipe out? Both to help you fight it, and that you need to cling to him in faith, actually hear that it is wiped out. Walk in freedom, not guilt, not shame from the past. Is there a tendency you have to fly off the handle angrily at people? Or to nurture anger or bitterness or resentment in your heart towards people you don't like? Or people who've hurt you? Or people who aren't like you? Does your eyes and flesh lust after what God has forbidden? Do you swell with pride that you're not like other people, failing to see that you have the exact same sins in your life, they just look a little different. Selfishness looks different for different people. Pride, ignorance looks different for different people. We all are broken. We all need our sins wiped out by the cleansing that Jesus Christ, the new Moses, brings. So, Peter would say to you, whether you've turned to Christ in the past or you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you've never turned to Jesus, or you need to just keep turning to Jesus every day, like we all do, turn to Jesus for the blotting out, the wiping out of all your sins and times of restoration and blessing will come, both now as you experience the blessing of life in his name and as you experience the hope of the resurrection that he will bring. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you showed up so long ago and you healed this man. Someday we'll maybe meet him in heaven and jump a little bit with him in celebration of your goodness and of your power to raise us all. I pray that you would stir our hearts with love for Christ. I pray that you would capture us with the beauty of the gospel message. Please turn us yet again to the news, the goodness of the news that our sins are wiped out by the Christ we worship. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.